I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Chimp Empire. Jackson is still under pressure. Abrams is back in his place, but he won't give up. Jackson needs to remind everyone who is in charge. Today, we're talking to director James Reed. Jackson relies on intimidation and political favors to maintain his leadership position in central Nagogo, while rivals within the group plot to usurp him. Suddenly, a crisis over resources in disputed territory turns deadly. Now Jackson must prepare for war against those who years ago drove him from his old tribe. This isn't a Tom Clancy political thriller. It's the real-life struggle between two groups of chimpanzees in Uganda. Chimp Empire takes us into their community as they play, explore, and care for one another. But the chimpanzees face threats, both internal and external. And as this forest turf war heats up, the chimps of Ngogo respond in a really human way. Territorial conflicts between groups are not a battle for wealth. They are a battle for survival. And I'm joined now by director James Reed. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, there is so much to talk about, about the chimpanzees of N'Gogo, but I want to get into your creative process. How long has N'Gogo been on your mind as a documentary subject, this place, these chimps? This this was not the first film project I'd done at N'Gogo, actually. Uh, several years ago, about, I think it's 2016, I made a featured documentary about the chimps and the scientists who studied them. And I was motivated to do that because I discovered that the the scientist, well, one of the scientists who'd been there since the, the beginning, he arrived there in 1993, he almost since he first started, he carried around with him a, a small mini DV camera and he was recording everything that he saw. So while they were discovering who these chimps were, and as the chimps were changing and growing and expanding their group in the forest, he was recording it all on this little camera. So there's an incredible archive of it. So I decided that there were there was an interesting story to be told about that 25-year study period and how they learned about this indomitable empire in the forest. That was a, a single one-off documentary. I loved it, formed a great relationship with the, well, a great passion for the chimps and a great relationship with the human scientists who worked there. But that was it. And then I, I moved on, did various other film projects for a few years. But I stayed in touch with one of the scientists in particular, but all of them generally. And they started telling me, you know, interesting things are happening in GoGo. This giant group, and it's the biggest group ever known, is finally splitting into two different groups. And this presented 
a unique opportunity from a scientific observation point of view, but also a unique opportunity from a filming point of view. So at that point, we knew it was going to be possible to return to Ngogo to embed into these two former allied groups who had now become rivals and were sharing sharing one territory in the rainforest. I spoke with uh, Dan White, who made the documentary series Cheer, a sports <laughs> documentary, and I asked him how he chose which people to follow through seasons on mm. this huge team. And he talked about choosing the uh, students for whom the stakes were the highest. And I'm mm. curious to know, I mean, did the scientists help you choose which chimps, you know, maybe had the most to gain, the most to lose, or who had the most precarious places in the group? I mean, how did you choose which, I mean, you can't film this everybody in this huge group of chimps. You know, I think maybe we went through quite a similar process yeah. to Dan on Jim, <laughs> because that that's exactly what, you know, we were looking for. Because you're right, there are 200 chimps, over 200 chimps in Gogo. So while we want to film the story of the society as a whole, we wanted it to be truly character driven. So we wanted to invest and follow and, and focus on individual chimpanzee characters more than others. You know, I think as a viewer, it's not helpful if you're spreading their attention across too many characters. So we knew that there was only that there was a limited number of chimp characters that we could use within the story. The casting process, as it were, might not be that different to to how you would do it for a, a human documentary series or drama. Usually you can't know that information about animals as much as you can with people. We were very fortunate. We had a very close relationship with the scientists who who know intimate details about each individual chimpanzee. So every single chimp and go-go, we carefully considered their backstory, what had happened in their life up to now, the relationships they've been involved with, any trauma that they they had experienced, enemies they had developed. You know, that was part of a process of trying to position ourselves, focusing on the chimps who were most likely to undergo some change during our filming period, where the stakes were highest, as in cheer. And that sort of knowing what trajectory they were on, so knowing what had happened in their life so far, and at what stage of life we were joining them, we were able to reasonably predict what may happen to them over our filming period. And at that point, we focused our energy into a smaller collection of chimps whose lives we followed. And a lot of nature documentaries, especially with different kinds of animals, I think there's a tendency for the viewer and sometimes, you know, a documentarian to some extent to maybe over-anthropomorphize their subjects. It is not necessary with chimpanzees because they're incredibly human and really emotional. And you capture those emotions very closely. I mean, the uh, the flickers in, in, of fear, of love, of expression, of uncertainty on their faces. I mean, first of all, they all look very different. I mean, the, the individuality of these animals is incredible. Can you just talk about camera work? Where were you <laughs> and how did you do it? How many cameras were there? How close were you? How habituated are these animals to being around cameras? Can you just talk about that process a little bit? Sure. So we wanted to bring people closer than ever before to the to the experience of being a chimpanzee at Ngogo. We didn't want to observe from a distance. We wanted you to sort of see and imagine how that felt being there. 
there's many things that we considered. We had 400 filming days, almost filming continuously across 18 months. And we had a team of four camera people running at all times. So that was two camera people per group. There's two and go-go groups that we were that we were documenting. We had two camera people in each. We selected the equipment and the team to allow us to follow the chimps as closely as possible for a longest period possible. We didn't want to glimpse sections of their day and their life and try and imagine or piece together the rest. We wanted to be around for as much of what happened to those individual chimps as possible. That means you're quite often around during boring periods. You're there whilst they're sleeping or, you know, they're just they can groom for for hours. And, you know, some of that's interesting and fascinating. And then you're like, okay, well, I think we've filmed enough grooming now. You take the quiet periods as well, but we treated it like a like a true observational documentary. If we were not there, we were not going to be able to capture it. And some of that involved walking for 20 kilometers a day through a rainforest of swamps, vines, and credit to an amazing camera team who had a combination of skills. They were all experienced in remote environments, but significantly a big portion of the team were experienced filmmakers of of human stories, of human characters. And I think that helps us with the look and the feel of the footage that it brings you closer and helps you identify with them as humans. Don't you think too, though, that once you sort of set up for the viewer uh, with your narration in the film, we'll talk about your narrator in a minute, how important every interaction is between these animals and how politics are so involved that, I mean, first of all, the boring parts aren't that boring. It's kind of like watching Big Brother, right? <laughs> like the, when, when they're sitting, people do watch Big Brother, people yeah. sitting around in a house just looking <laughs> at each other, right? Um, these animals, every moment they spend together has meaning. Mm. When you explain to people that when chimps are looking at each other and talking to each other that there's politics. Like, it all has meaning. Somebody touching mm-hmm. each other in this group has meaning. A male touching another male, grooming him or not grooming him, it all has meaning. So, yeah, you may have gotten enough grooming, but maybe not be. You might miss five minutes. That's really important. You're absolutely right. And the moment at which they exchange and the groomer becomes the groomee, All of those things reflect character and personality and details about their relationship. There are certain chimps who are sort of well-known for, they'll do a little bit of grooming and then they'll turn their back and expect to have it come back to them. And there are other chimps who are extremely meticulous about grooming, especially around very important allies, chimps that they want to win favor with, who are going to be useful to them in some context further down the line. This could be an opportunity to form a very useful relationship. Gus is really trying. An up-and-comer like Abrams is happy to be groomed by most chimps. The real test for Gus will be if Abrams grooms him back. I think it's amazing for, for, for viewers who are coming to it for the first time, but that sort of system and the currency of grooming and the the nuance of how their alliances are managed and developed and forged, it, it is truly amazing. And, and you can see and feel it when you're there. And I hope it comes across 
in the series. So you made a stylistic choice in this documentary that I thought was very interesting. You kind of drop the viewer in. You don't give us context about the scientific project at all at the beginning. You drop us in with a narrator who just introduces us to the characters. Of course, your narrator is Academy Award winner Mahershala Ali. And it's very kind of spare, just introducing us to each chimp. Can you just talk about what it was like deciding to craft that narration, working with him and, you know, the style of telling this story? You know, it's interesting you say it's spare. I think it is spare in, in, in many parts of the series, but I think particularly once we had Mahishara on board and, you know, we were huge fans and, and his, his voice is incredible. It and is. It's, it's understated and it's philosophical. And I think once we knew he was on board, we expanded the script to a degree because we knew it was going to fit so nicely. How did we become the way we are? As humans, we spend our lives trying to understand ourselves. But sometimes it feels we're too close to see clearly. That's why we love stories from other worlds. In the world of chimpanzees, so similar to ours in some ways, but so different in others. In fact, the first cut that Sarah ever saw, which was an early rough cut of episode one, it had no words on it at all. Mm. Now, normally in the edit, I would be doing a guide narration to get, to give her or anyone a, a sense of what that narration would be when we had the pro voice on it later. But we decided not to on that initial phase and to see whether we would follow the story atmospherically and visually and musically without any narration at all. And it was a great exercise because it gave us huge confidence to know that, well, if we choose to do some parts without any words or explanation at all, it definitely works and you're engaged with it and you follow it. But in the end, you know, we embraced the use of Mahershala's voice because it was it really added something. It, it wasn't the we desperately needed it to make sense of what was going on, although that definitely is the case at times. But what I'm so pleased about how well that worked is he just adds a sort of a philosophical and conceptual layer to it that we we can hope for. How much of the footage did he see as he was doing the narration? How much did you show him? He He saw all of it. So I think Ahead of the narration, we'd shared the first episode that he'd watched, and he'd also read all four scripts. You know, some people doing voiceovers like to do it in, in different ways, and, and some people, you know, like to narrate precisely to picture. So they like to be watching the picture and to deliver their lines in the exact place that they will be in the final film. Some people don't like to watch it at all and close their eyes and like to get into their own head and, and read their lines alone. Those are two extremes. Uh, Mahishala was somewhere in the middle where he didn't want to be trying to time his lines perfectly to those moments in, in the film, but he really enjoyed watching the scenes and getting a sense of the atmosphere and the tone. It's in their nature to compete for resources and to see chimps from rival groups as others to be attacked and destroyed. And all the way through, we'd stop 
and he'd have he'd have questions about the chimps or comments about what was happening. So he was he was very engaged in the chimp storylines in the world, in the psychology of the chimps. Yeah, I think that really helped with his amazing delivery and performance. Now, I really do want to talk about the characters in the story, and I'm so glad that you talked about casting and characters because this, I mean, these are real chimps, but it it really is one of the, the greatest dramas I've ever seen on the screen, to be completely honest with you. Let's talk about the Central and Go-Go group. We meet Jackson, the alpha there. He is, in in many ways, the obvious choice to be the emotional center of the series, right? When we were initially doing the casting, and we were you know, looking at every potential chimp in the central group, you know, who are we going to focus on? Which are the most interesting perspectives? Which are the most surprising perspectives? You know, we sort of brushed past Jackson a little bit and thought, well, he's the alpha male. So of course he will be involved. He's an important presence and he affects other chimps' lives. But initially we assumed he would be a B character actually, because it was sort of almost too obvious. And I felt we want to be more surprising than that. So initially, he was not top of our list of characters. As the filming started approaching, we realized that Jackson, through talking to the scientists, you know, they were saying, you know, this Jackson's story could be more than a straight two-dimensional alpha male story, actually, because Jackson has been in charge now for six years. And at some point in the not-too-distant future, he will not be alpha for one reason or another. This was this is already a long time at the top. And some of these younger chimps are going to be trying to push their way up there. But Jackson is well aware that some chimps are showing less respect than others. A chimp this age should be too young to pose a real challenge to Jackson. But not all chimps are as smart or as confident as Abrams. We knew that there could be some immediate challenges to his authority, which instantly makes for interesting stories. So, you know, when we started filming Jackson, we had absolutely no idea how interesting his his story would become. There's a lot about Jackson's story that's very Shakespearean, right? I mean, I just kept thinking, mm. you know, uneasy is the head that wears the crown. Um, mm. He really has dual forces coming at him in many ways. And, you know, Abrams is this usurper in the tribe, uh, <laughs> looking at him sideways all the time. <laughs> and we'll we'll talk about the other group in a second. But I found myself wondering, is Abrams just, you know, kind of looking at the crown? Or is some of this conflict also created by Jackson's very traditional, very patriarchal leadership style, where it's just like, I am the alpha? I mean, because we see two very different styles of leadership in these two groups. I, th- I think it does. I think how you lead affects people's respect and tolerance of your authority. That's true of human society, and it's definitely true in chimpanzee society. And we we know that because of this 25-year history at Ngogo, there have been several alphas, and they've all been very different in character, and they've managed their role as Alpha in a very different way. The most successful Alpha who's ever been at Ngogo, I think in, in terms of 
time at the top is a chimpanzee called Bartok, and and he was dead uh, long before we we filmed the series. But he was a very astute politician. He's actually quite a small chimp. So from a physical point of view, individual power. You know, there's probably several other chimps who were tougher than he was and and could have beaten him in a fight, no problem. But he was very good at managing political relationships with other big, powerful chimps who, who kept him in that position for a long time. So allies were the secret to Bartok's success, whereas there have been single, very powerful, individually very big and tough and powerful chimps who have bullied their way to the top but haven't lasted long hmm. because it doesn't work. It's not It's not sustainable. Jackson, I think, was somewhere in between. He, he did have some strong allies and, and Miles was a very significant ally uh, for him coming up the dominance hierarchy, but also whilst he was at the top. But he did also have a tendency to display his dominance it feels un- unnecessary and it feels a bit insecure and and that will have an impact on all the all the chimps around yeah you could argue did he bring it on himself or was he unlucky that abrams was just coming up at that point well you were there for this incredible moment i mean every great film needs this you know macguffin to need this to get the story going and yours is this incredibly uh beautiful and rare bountifully fruitful tree it's chrysophyllum the rarest richest bounty of ngogo it appears in a massive crop once every few years it's unpredictable, and when it happens, it provides more food than the chimps can eat. And it is this sort of MacGuffin because in the end, the conflict isn't really about the tree. I mean, it is and it isn't, right? That was um, amazing and, and a genuine piece of luck because that doesn't come in annually. Chrysophyllum is, a, is an unusual tree, an unusual fruit that comes in every few years in, in quite an unpredictable cycle. So we were filming for 400 days in total. We were basically on location for a year and a half. It was just after the midpoint of our, we'd been filming for about half our filming period. And then Chrysophyllum arrives. And we could not have hoped for that because it changes the entire forest. You know, it's an incredible bounty of fruit. It comes at once and it comes up in multiple locations around the territory. And a particular concentration in the borderlands between these two groups. So it was the trigger for their rivalry to to escalate. And it it was inevitable. We we did know when this came in and the scientists were like, we're going to see things change big time here. This is going to be a period of intense activity because there's a lot of food and the food source is in a disputed area between the two groups. You don't want to wish bad things on the chimps. We were very attached to chimps on both sides by this point. And you wouldn't want to wish violence upon chimps anyway. But for the purposes of understanding chimpanzee life and this story specifically this was an amazing opportunity because this this is what it's like they're territorial creatures and their resources within that territory 
are important and they're worth fighting for. I do want to talk about that big plot twist at the end of episode one in, in, a, in a minute, but I do want to ask you about your philosophy about the portrayal of violence in the documentary, because it is hard to strike that balance, right? Like you want people to want to watch it. And it mm. is an incredibly suspenseful uh, series. Mm. And you do become very attached to these characters because they do have mm. names. They have faces. Uh, they have real you know, storylines and, and high stakes. And yet they are wild creatures who have real cycles of life and politics. So when you want to strike the balance and show us what happens in these societies, like how do you decide how much to show? It's very hard. And I, I hope we have achieved the appropriate balance. I think that's something that has kept me up at night at times and, and it's been of a constant concern for the team. The chimps are, on the one hand, extremely gentle and cooperative creatures. They show a level of care for each other, their families, but not just their families, for other chimps they're not related to. They're incredibly nurturing and compassionate. There's, there is so much to relate to in a very positive way. They have another side and they are as competitive as they are cooperative and they're competitive for status, and they're competitive over territory and resources. And that could be manifest itself in acts of extreme violence. And and those two sides exist within almost all chimpanzees. And that's the reality and the truth about chimps. That dichotomy is really what, what chimps are. So I really hope people don't come away from this only remembering the violent side of chimps. Uh, I hope we've done a good enough job to reflect the tender, cooperative, compassionate and, and, and intelligent side of chimps as well. And that, because that was really our aim. We, we knew that there was going to be a story of conflict here. We knew there were going to be acts of violence that affected them in one way or the other or affected other species. Let's not forget, they hardly treat other primates very well in the forest either. Right. But we really hoped that there would be an equal amount to identify with on their their softer sides yeah. and their more compassionate sides. You know, there is this big plot twist if we discover our beloved pork pie has been a victim of this conflict. Um, and then that's when we learn there is this rival group of chimpanzees. And you had filmed the confrontation two days earlier. Can you just talk about that decision to show us the what ha you know the consequence and then roll back and, and show the viewer when sort of what led up to it? Because that was just such a fascinating storytelling choice. I think in episode one, you don't know about the Western chimpanzees yet. And we made that choice that we thought, you know, there's a lot to explain about Ngogo life. And we thought, let's focus on the central group first and see the world and the forest through their perspective. And that's why we wanted the first time that we knew, knew of pork pie's demise or saw pork pie, we wanted to do it with the central chimps to show you what it was like to be a central chimp in that context. He was caught alone and killed by a rival group right in the middle of Ngogo territory. If 
a chimp can be killed here, it means this forest kingdom and all the chimps in it are no longer safe. That felt like the most important thing. How, how does this seem to them? We're identifying with them as a group and individuals within that group at the minute. And they're unaware of what's happened to Port Pie until they find his body. You're right. There's a lot of choices we could have made there about how to reveal that. But that felt like a great starting off point to show you, the viewer, that we're with them. We're going to see the world how they see it. We're going to try not to show you things that they don't see. And that's going to bring you as close as possible to the experience of the Ngogo Chimps, which was the intention. I want to get back to a little bit of the care and nurturing you were talking about, because we do see a lot of scenes of, you know, mothers and babies of, you know, the family dynamics. It is interesting to me the roles of female chimps in both of these Mm -hmm. tribes. In the Western tribe, uh, the female chimps have more of a little bit more of a power dynamic role. Definitely. In the Central tribe, they have more of a sort of a traditional role. Can you just talk about female chimps in in general? Because it's just very interesting to me how they do sort of have this dual role in chimp society in a way that male chimps kind of don't. Male chimps are sort of finding their way and female chimps just sort of seem to have a more established role no matter what it kind of is. I think that's one of the most interesting things about chimpanzee social lives, actually. You know, it's not just at Ngogo, but at other sites across Africa, the role and influence that female chimps have over the group is quite different from group to group. So it's this really interesting, you could call it a cultural difference between groups defined by the roles that the females play, which I personally thought was fascinating. It's hard to tell. You you have to go on what you're able to see and what the scientists are able to understand and interpret. But you're right that the female chimps in the central group appeared to play a more passive role. In the West, it is definitely true that they are much more active in the dominance hierarchy and in the bigger, potentially more dangerous cooperative behaviours. And the interpretation for that is that they are a smaller group. There is a slightly different culture there that they have to work together. They have to be more cooperative. And that was the, it was interesting about the Western group. They tended to always be more together than the central group. There are just eight adult males compared to 24 in the central group. So the females stand together with the males and help defend the territory. And the females are treated better in the West. There's no, there's no doubt about it. It feels like in the central group, the macho males constantly competing and there's a lot of them and these rivalries are playing out all over the place. And it feels like quite a stressful place to be yeah. as a female chimp, particularly with, with a young infant. Whereas in the West, they spend a lot more time playing so as a group, you know, adults with youngsters and, and all together, a lot more of their day, that's reflected in the scientific data. The Westerners spend more time playing and and they share, they have a division of labor that feels, you know, from a human perspective, it feels better. It feels like life in the West is better, which was particularly interesting for us because of the smaller group. When it comes to their treatment of outsiders, the Westerners are 
fearless right. and hostile to a degree way beyond what the central group are. So they they have this internal sense of sort of cooperation and an atmosphere of sort of sharing and less aggression internally. But when it came to the outsiders, they were the most aggressive. They're like, don't mess with what we've got going on here. Yeah, like, oh, well, you're, you're one of us at home. It's all, this yeah. is all great. We look after you because you're a Western. If you're not a Westerner, we'll kill you. It's just so interesting because the central group, chimpanzees would tend to wander off because they needed a break from their group. Yeah. And I'm like, don't leave the group because that's when you're in danger. But the, <laughs> the Westerners would all stick together. It's just like the dynamics were yeah. just so, had such an effect on their safety too. Yeah. Interesting to me too, another dynamic that you can near the end is that is it Joya who gets to be a certain age and then yeah. leaves how mm. and this is a stupid question I know how do mm. they know they're supposed to do that <laughs> Joya is leaving everything and everyone she's ever known but somewhere out in the forest she'll find a new group where she can build herself a life that's one of those where we take for granted the scientific analysis of that but I think it's it's interesting. I think that actually happens in it's not just chimps. It's in in a lot of different animal species. They reach a certain age, and instinct kicks in. You know, she was reaching sexual maturity. She was she reached a reproductive age. It's a way to avoid inbreeding. Mm-hmm. So actually, all the females, apart from a couple of exceptions, but the vast majority of females, when they reach that age, they will leave and they and they'll try and find another group. Because it's what all chimps do in this forest anyway, they're they're used to receiving new females. They're always given a bit of a frosty reception, particularly by the local females. You feel sorry for them when you see them arrive in a new group. You know, they've left everything that they knew, all the chimps that they were friends with and grew up, and they've now arrived at a completely new group filled with strangers. And what's more, None of the local females want them there. You know, they tend to get beaten up quite a lot as well at the start. So it's, it's hard. And I think that's for us and hopefully for the viewer, that was quite an emotional thing to witness and to understand Joya leaving that group because, you know, she's about to have a really hard, hard transition, but she has to do it. And she'll, it's a way of having a healthy family in the end. You captured so many wonderful things. I mean, we have... Jackson's, you know, what happens to Jackson? I mean, I would call it a redemption arc in many ways. You have, you know, Joya's departing her tribe. You know, you have, you know, Christine's baby reaching the age of one. You have this resolution of this conflict between uh, these two groups. I could stay there forever and keep filming them forever because you could probably capture endless stories. How do you know when you can say, okay, we can wrap this project for now? I mean, is it just because it's like it's been 400 days? I mean, how do you know when to stop? I mean, that's a good question. With any film project, you, well, with certainly with most film projects, you've got to set a limit to the, <laughs> you, you've got to, you've got to give yourself an endpoint, a, a delivery day. So there was, there was a schedule, you know, we were scheduled to film for that 400 days. I'm sure if at the end of that 400 days, something very significant was happening, then we would have jumped on the phone to Sarah and, and the rest of the guys at Netflix and said, there's a huge element of the story that's still unfolding. And I imagine we probably would have had quite a sensible conversation about extending. But actually, for whatever reason it was, 
the most sort of dramatic events that we thought we were likely to get sort of resolved and passed uh, shortly before the end of our filming schedule. Since we've been filming, there's been all sorts of interesting stuff going on and there will continue to be. Chimp life generally, you know, from what we know, especially in Gogo, there is there is a constant drama unfolding there and it, and it will never stop as long as there are chimps at Ngogo. So in a sense, you're right, you know, when do you stop? It came to a convenient conclusion for us within our timeline, but we could very easily be there now filming Chimp Empire Season 2. At the end, you try to sum up what we humans can learn from our evolutionary cousins. As their closest relatives, what does this mean for us? Who are we? How did we become the way we are? Chimps can certainly offer clues. We can often recognize the best and worst of ourselves in them. What do you think is the answer to that question? You know, I think that it's not for me to say, and that might sound like a bit of a cop-out, but I think what we intended to do was to show you different examples of, of chimpanzee life through different chimpanzees' lives and how they intersected with each other and to present a story from the forest that we wanted people to really engage in. And we were very fortunate that, you know, the events that unfolded and the characters that we followed were as engaging as we could have ever hoped for. What you take from that individually, I think, is a very personal thing. Everybody is going to relate to different chimpanzee characters, different aspects of the story. They're going to see things that they recognize in themselves personally or that they recognize in individuals that they know things that they wish humans could do better or things that they recognize that aren't so good either. It's hopefully a personal experience. It's not for us to impose a view on that, to say, well, look, this is what we've shown you and therefore you should now think this about your own humanity and origins. I think there's too much there that's open to, to interpretation. Well, I can tell you one thing, it is a completely unforgettable thing to watch. Uh, James Reed, thank you so much for making Chimp Empire, and thank you for joining me to talk about it. It is such a pleasure to meet you. Thanks very much for having me. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director James Reed. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 